Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. All right, episode three today. Episode three? Episode three. What are you calling this episode? Well, first of all, Joe Crespo. Thanks oh, yeah, for right. introducing yourself like we talked about. I'm Joe Buccino. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joe Buccino, Crespo. We have two male voices, so we should distinguish who's who. For, for sure. Joe Crespo, Joe Buccino. Hello. Crespo, yeah, we have our first guest. First guest, episode three. Episode three. What are you calling the episode? This is, we're calling this the wilderness years. Wilderness. I don't, without giving much into the episode, why are you calling it the wilderness years? I, the wilderness years is a term that was used, as far as I can tell, as far as I've been able to research, it was first used by Henry Kissinger, to refer to the political career of Richard Nixon from the period of 1962 mm -hmm. to about 1966. I'm intentionally misusing it. Right. Okay, so what Henry Kissinger was referring to was that after losing the presidential election 1960 to JFK and then losing really a shocking loss in the California gubernatorial race in 1962, Richard Nixon was in a bit of a political wilderness. He was adrift. He was lost. He had no place to go in the Republican Party. Okay. I am using it here to refer to American Middle East policy, American military command policy, and military structure in the Middle East from World War II till about 1976. There is no unifying policy. There was no command overseeing uh, the Middle East. Uh, there's no unified command overseeing the Middle East, and there were very few forces in the region. Fascinating. So today you have your first guest outside of me. We have a guest who, yeah, well, you're not a guest. You're a bit of a co-host here. But right. yeah, we have a guest here, a fellow named Scotty Dawson. He's really studied this period, and he's a master in the, of this material. He has been here in CENTCOM for a very long time. He's been here since uh, two, July 2007 right. as the CENTCOM command historian. Well, welcome, Mr. Dawson, and can't wait to see and hear what you had to share about the wilderness years. Yeah, and the, the idea here is we're going to start, like I said, in, in World War II, and we'll stop uh, kind of where you and I started in Episode 2 with uh, the Carter presidency, late 1970s. We've already covered that period. Now we're going back to really before there was even any consideration for CENTCOM or a four-star command or a unified command in the Middle East. You are listening to CENTCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command. America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. Scotty, you know, we here in CENTCOM, or people thinking about CENTCOM generally think the story of CENTCOM and the formation thereof begins in the late 1970s with the Carter administration, the Islamic Revolution, but there was a military command in this part of the world long before that. Sure. Um, so, you know, the U.S. doesn't really have much of a strategic interest in this region prior to World War II, mm. but starting World War II, it becomes a, a little-known but crucial part of the war effort, and we create something called Persian Gulf Command, which has about 30,000 soldiers assigned to it, and its main function was moving Lend-Lease equipment through Iran, and Iraq into the Soviet Union. So we should probably just just sure. uh, maybe recap or refresh folks on the Lend-Lease Act, March 1st, 1941, announced by FDR. And, you know, of course, as people probably learned, high school, middle school, this allowed the U.S. to lend or lease war supplies to any nation that was deemed vital defense of the U.S. is before the U.S. had entered the war. And, um, 
you know, I, I think most people, and it, myself included, think of the Lend-Lease Act as supporting Great Britain, and um, it actually also applied to the Soviet Union through the Persian Gulf Corridor. Absolutely. It's support given to the Soviet Union is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. And we're not providing weapons as much as providing the, the material that is vital to support a modern military machine. So a lot of railway engines and, and cars, a lot of motor vehicles and trucks. Over one-third of the trucks in the Soviet Army by 1945 are American-built trucks. Uh, when you see those Katusha rocket launchers, a lot of them are on Studebaker truck chassis. And, uh, and a huge portion of this material comes through Persian Gulf Command through Iran. In 1943, it's the principal source of Lend-Lease material going to the Soviet Union. They actually build plants in Abaddon, Iran, to build the airplanes. They come in crated, and then they put the airplanes together in Abaddon and then fly them to the Soviet Union. Uh, they're putting railway trucks, railway engines together that have come over crated. They fabricate them there, and then they can put them on the railway lines and get them to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is producing almost no rolling stock because all their weapons, all their manufacturing is going to building tanks and airplanes. And so uh, they're totally dependent on us for keeping them in war. This is crucial to defeating Germany in World War II. So this Persian Gulf Command is established, when is it established? Um, I want to say 1942. 42, and, and where is it headquartered? Where are the, I know these soldiers. So it's originally headquartered in Basra, but it quickly moves to be being headquartered in Tehran. Mm. Uh, and the wow. soldiers are mainly in Iran, mainly working in the ports and then convoying equipment, uh, materiel, uh, through Iran, and some of it is going up through Iraq. So there's a uh, U.S. military presence in Iraq as well, but but it's mainly going through Iran. Ports like Boucher, uh, Abadan is a, is a big case. And of course, one interesting little side note on that is uh, one of the challenges with these convoys is there's a lot of banditry in Iran. Mm. So a U.S. Army officer is sent to help build an, a, an Iranian gendarmerie, which, which is still going. It's kind of the Iranian highway patrol today. And that officer was uh, Colonel, later Brigadier General Norman Schwarzkopf Sr. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, yeah. as we go through CENTCOM history, yeah. we will run into his son. That's right. Um, but little Norman Jr. Mm -hmm. spent a good part of his youth in Tehran as mm -hmm. a boy because his father was assigned there working with the uh, Persian Gulf Command. Mm. So this command is led by a, I believe, an Army colonel? Uh, it was eventually led by an Army two-star general. Okay. And, uh, and again, it's about 30,000 soldiers. And um, they're all in Iran? Uh, they're not all in Iran. Some are in Iraq. So, okay. um, but it's Persian Gulf Command. Okay. So um, Basra, uh, the ports there provide an important conduit and link that also goes up the Soviet Union. But the bulk of this material is coming through Iran. And in fact, a lot of material that comes into uh, the Iraqi ports on the Shad al-Arab then go to Abaddon, which is just on the other side the Shad al-Arab. And this was always going to be a temporary command? It was always intended to be a temporary command. It's actually stood down on 1 July 1945. Mm -hmm. So this is after Germany's been defeated before mm -hmm. the end of the war. But it had started winding down by early 1945, late 1944, because as the war progressed, the German ability to uh, attack other routes of supply were greatly diminished. So by, by late uh, 44, you can safely move your material through the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and get it to the Soviet Union that way rather than taking a more roundabout route through the Persian Gulf. And the Murmansk convoys, which were extremely hazardous in 42 and 43, have become much less hazardous by late 1944, early 1945. And that's also a much shorter route to getting material. So the Persian Gulf Command is winding down by late 1944. But, but 1943, it's the main 
main uh, route. So during its period of operation, Persian Gulf Command, you alluded to this uh, enormous volume of support. Right. More than 2.5 million tons of material to the Soviet Union, nearly 5,000 planes and 200,000 military vehicles. Correct. And, you know, I, I did uh, take a look at uh, a little bit some of the maybe firsthand accounts in here and both the uh, American side and some of the Iranian leaders. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I think, slice of World War II that I certainly didn't know. For three years, American GIs, they, they're toiling away, sweltering heat in southern Iran here. Sandstorms, there's stories about temperatures that rise to 130 plus degrees in the shade. And leaders, army leaders, trying to take care of their troops, but there's very little they can do because they've got to process all this, this equipment. They've got to move this equipment to the Soviets to get into the fight. And it's just incredibly hot. It's, it's extremely difficult conditions. And again, it's a, it's a little known theater. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a morale issue with, um, you know, while other units are fighting the Japanese in the Pacific, supporting the great invasion in Normandy, you're in this backwater location and you're doing less glamorous but absolutely vital work of delivering trucks, delivering railway cars, delivering planes. You know, there was one incident where uh, almost everybody lost their Christmas mail because the ship that was carrying the mail was sunk by a U-boat. Oh, uh, my God. You know, oh, so, man. yeah, that, that happened. Bad for morale. Yeah, bad for morale. I wish I'd brought, I have a small book that has a bunch of short stories and vignettes um, mm -hmm. with an introduction by Thurber, actually, you know, where he talks about how challenging it was to serve in the conditions in Persian Gulf Command. And you're absolutely right, the, the um, extremes of geography, deserts, mountains, the extremes of temperature, and the, and the challenges of having to build infrastructure in a region that had very little infrastructure. There's not a good road network. There is a rail network, which, which really helped, that had just been completed in 1938. But the ports also need to be almost built from, from scratch. Yeah. And the soldiers that go to do this work were very hurriedly assigned and don't get a lot of training. They get quick training in the United States, and then they get sent on a long ocean vo voyages to get to here, and they, they really have to figure things out as they get there. It's a real example of the ingenuity of the American soldier and the American servicemen and women. Of course, in this area, they're almost all soldiers and are almost all men who are faced with circumstances and come up with all kinds of innovative and creative solutions to solve the problems. I don't have a lot of specific examples from Persian Gulf Command, mm -hmm. but in other places you see where um, Axis powers had, had tried to sink ships to block harbors and they just build a pier over the sunken ships mm. and then just use that. So, yeah. You know, you see these kind of solutions all throughout the war. Yeah, it, it's interesting from the soldier perspective too, I don't want to dig too deep into this, but it's sure. the soldier perspective is that, you know, first of all, like they, they were confused as to what the point of all this was in some right. cases. And then, you know, it's it's a little bit of an irony that they're in this incredible heat and they're sending this equipment off to like the snowy white mountains in, in Russia, right. in the Russian, kind of the Russian steppe. So, you know, there's stories also, you know, soldiers, they sometimes they get in trouble, you know, so there's stories uh, that, that period, you know, GIs getting into trouble, they're, they're starting fights, chasing women, getting drunk, and uh, the Iranian interior ministry is reporting on GI misconduct. The problem was there was no official treaty governing the presence of U.S. troops, so they could only receive kind of a reprimand from their commander. And I think maybe the problem a little bit on both sides is that these troops who maybe were not um, fully prepared culturally were the first Americans that many of these Iranians encountered. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, just for a little more background on it, in uh, 
when was it, 1941, the Iranian Shah had been kind of leaning towards the Axis powers. Mm. So in August 1941, the British and the Soviets get together and they effectively invade Iran mm. and they dispose the Shah and put in his son, who is Reza Shah Pahlava, who will be the Shah that gets deposed in 1979, is put in position by the British with the Soviets colluding. So when the Americans come in as Persian Gulf Command, they're really following in on the British presence mm -hmm. in Tehran and, and in, in Iran, um, and they're compensating for that because the British just don't have the capacity to support this lend-lease effort and this logistical effort. They're just, they're just stressed far too thin. So they're, mm. they're um, relying heavily on British support for things like um, interactions with the Iranians. You know, this is one of the reasons why the Tehran Conference in 1943, you know, why is it held in Tehran of all places? Well, it's a convenient location for Stalin. It's actually a pretty good location for Churchill because of the British control. And because Persian Gulf Command is in place, it's not a bad location for uh, Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. as well. And uh, um, there was concern with Axis agents. The Soviets made a point of telling the Brits and the Americans that uh, we're worried that there's going to be an Axis plot, a German plot to assassinate the leaders at the Big Three Tehran conference um, that led uh, Roosevelt to, to move his residence from the American legation, which is on the other side of Tehran, to the Soviet legation and stay with uh, Stalin during mm -hmm. that conference. Well, well, you know, it's certainly, there's a lot that goes through uh, Persian Gulf Command. You know, perhaps our troops didn't fully acquit themselves, uh, you know, to the best that they could have. You know, at the time, it seems like uh, there's also wheat shortages in Iran. Sure. People in Iran are going hungry. GIs are walking around with a pocket full of cash, drinking, and it's, not, it's just a, an odd, it's not a good look, not a good, con not sure. a good contrast. But, you know, there's a cool um, logo for this Persian Gulf Command green shield. I've uh, got in front of me here with the seven point white star and a red scimitar point up. Yeah, that would have been the shoulder sleeve insignia. Shoulder sleeve for the, insignia. For, the, uh, um, for that command. So that command goes away in 1945, and then once you take us through 1945, maybe to the early 1970s. Sure. Um, so one thing I want to mention in 1945 before we go on is in February 1945, there's another big three conference. The first one was in Tehran in 43. And then the next one is at Yalta. But after the Yalta conference, President Roosevelt on the USS Quincy makes a, a detour, if you will, down to the Suez Canal, to the Great Bitter Lake, where he mm -hmm. meets King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia. So this is a hugely crucial meeting where Ibn Saud personally meets with FDR, and this begins the security relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And that's really the basis of this longstanding relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Famous photo showing the two of them uh, meeting on the deck of the USS Quincy. A destroyer had been sent to bring Ibn Saud and his advisors to, to this meeting. And the captain of the destroyer had problems because of course they'd laid the captain's cabin for Ibn Saud's use. He refused to sleep in an iron cage mm. and they had to pitch his tents on the, um, on the fantail of the ship. Uh, he tried to bring over 100 sheep uh, because he was going to feed the crew and there's a lot of uh, negotiation. He was allowed to bring a handful of sheep on board so that the food could be prepared for him in halal cases. And then there was uh, strict instructions to keep the members of his household from watching the movies that would be shown on the mess deck uh, at night, although a couple of them did in fact sneak in to see the American 
movies uh, uh -huh. with scantily, comparatively okay. scantily clad women. But, but <laughs> Ibn Saud and FDR have an extremely positive meeting, and this lays a very solid foundation for U.S.-Soviet relations. Mm. And then, you know, after 1945, the, uh, the Middle East and the Arabian Gulf in particular had always had a, a long-standing British interest. And the British, um, uh, you know, they were involved in Iraq. They had the Anglo-Persian, later Anglo-Iranian oil company, now British Petroleum in Iran. Um, what are now the uh, UAE, Qatar, and Bahrain were crucial states under the British. So there was an understanding that the British would be primarily responsible for security in the region. Uh, the U.S. Navy establishes a small naval detachment in Bahrain, which was a British naval base at the time. What's now NSA Bahrain began life as a Royal Navy facility um, in 1949. So from 1949 on, we have a small naval presence mm -hmm. in the region. But um, and that's under the that's under Middle East Force. Um, that becomes Middle East Force, okay. right? Okay. So, and it's typically about three ships um, mm -hmm. that are based in Bahrain under Middle East Force, and Middle East Force effectively works uh, under uh, what becomes PAC Fleet and U.S. PACOM uh, as the UCP gets uh, created. Mm -hmm. So, we uh, see the first Unified Command Plan created in uh, 1946. Doesn't actually cover the Middle East, but what becomes Middle East Force will initially fall under um, PAC fleet uh, and, and what will become U.S. PACOM. This is Unified Command Plan is the plan for American assets, forces, for structure across the world, all over the world under various command. Right. So, so um, And the Middle East is not covered in this. The Middle East is not covered in this. So uh, the Unified Command Plan is really focused on the emerging Soviet threat. Mm -hmm. and, and as it evolves by 1950, it's completely evolved on that. So the Middle East is not involved, again, partly because the British have a very strong security presence in the Middle East, and so we are counting on them. And in 1955, there's a creation of something called the Central Treaty Organization, CENTO. Mm. So I think we're all familiar with NATO, mm -hmm. um, the role that NATO plays. There's another treaty called CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which covers Southeast Asia, and that includes the United States, includes Australia, includes New Zealand and a number of other regional countries. And that's intended to be similar to NATO. It never gets a unified command structure, but CETO will become the, the main framework for our involvement in the Vietnam conflict. And the idea was to create central or treaty organization and have effectively ring the Soviet Union with these treaty structures. And CENTO includes Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. It does not include the United States. The United States is actually not a treaty member in CENTO. Mm -hmm. The UK is. CENTO is probably a good idea on paper, but it never amounts to anything. Um, it's called the Baghdad Pact because of where it's signed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help that a few years after CENTO is established, Iraq will have a revolution and will withdraw from the pact. And, and of course, uh, it will... It will live on until the Iranian Revolution in 1979, but it never conducts any exercises. It never has any kind of a formal command structure. It's never anything more than just a, a, an agreement on paper. Okay. It never leads to anything. Okay. So no actual even organizational meeting right. or anything of that nature. Right. And, in, and so in 1956, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as they're looking at the Unified Command Plan, suggest maybe we should create a Middle East command. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's accepted 
But it's let's look at creating Middle East Command sometime in the future, and then no actions ever actually taken on it. It's in 1959 that a, a, um, another proposal, you know, let's really look at creating a Middle East Command. And at that point, the State Department is actually the organization that objects. They're concerned about militarizing our relationship with the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there, there is no formal uh, decision to create any kind of a formal command structure for the Middle East at that point. Um, and I guess at that point we're focused on the Soviets, we're really starting the Cold War. So this is not a place perhaps where we're seeing threats coming out of? Well, it's, it's both that we're not, seeing, we're not seeing a Soviet threat there. There is concern about the Soviets potentially coming through Iran, threatening the Gulf. Um, we haven't gotten to the point where the world is as dependent on Middle Eastern oil as it will become in the 60s and 70s. But again, we see a really strong British uh, security presence there. And so the key thing that will change is in 1968 when the British announce for budgetary reasons they're going to withdraw their military forces from east of Suez. So the British withdraw from the region. That withdrawal doesn't fully take effect until the very early 70s. But this is what leads to the independence of Bahrain, Qatar, and what uh, UAE, what had been the crucial states. Um, But it also creates a security vacuum that there's concern that the Soviets might be able to exploit. Mm -hmm. Now leaving the Middle East open for perhaps uh, great power competition. Right. Well, and great power competition is going on in the region. Mm -hmm. So Iraq has aligned itself with the Soviet Union. Egypt has aligned itself with the Soviet Union. So we're deeply concerned about the great power competition that is going on in the region. Mm -hmm. But again, while we had the British presence... (laughs) We were counting on them to offset it. Once they withdraw, we recognize we need to offset the Soviet presence that's occurring in the region. Um, And our principal partners will become Saudi Arabia and Iran. And Iran will become the main security partner that we have starting in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have a very large security cooperation relationship with Iran. We're providing them a great deal of material, which is why they still fly F-4s for example, uh, and uh, it's, uh, I believe it's a one-star command, but you know, large security cooperation office in a, in, um, a major relationship where we're providing them with arms and equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so let's, uh, that takes us up to, I think, the early 1970s, sure. and kind of the, where um, the formation of Strike Command, which uh, is, has a focus on the Middle East, but I believe is kind of a rapid deployment force for other uncovered parts of the world. Right. Strike Command, so Strike Command is actually created in 1962. Um, uh, it's under the Kennedy administration, mm-hmm. and it's to address problems that were seen with the unified command plan, part of which come out of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but uh, although it's created before the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the big issue is a concern over the areas of the globe that are not covered by the UCP. So that'll be Africa. We're starting to see Soviet um, movement in Africa, Angola, places like that, and the Middle East. And so Strike Command is responsible for forces that are un- unassigned in CONUS, and it creates... What do you mean by unassigned in CONUS? So you have your forces that are assigned to combatant commands. So forces that are in Germany okay, are yeah. assigned to Germany. Right. Then you have major forces in the continental United States mm-hmm. that are not assigned to a geographic COCOM. Okay. And the biggest ones are the Army has created the Strategic Army Corps. Yep. So if you're really, really old... In the army, you'll hear you'll have heard people referring to something as being STRAC. Yeah. That's really STRAC. That goes yeah. back to the Strategic Army Command, 
which was intended to be a core, sorry, strategic army core, which was intended to be a core that was rapidly deployable worldwide. Yeah. And the there's, there's posters, so there's posters in uh, uh, the U.S. Army Heritage Education Center right. uh, for STRAC, and so the the tagline is like, "That's a STRAC soldier." Right. Being that, like, that's a soldier who's ready to deploy. He's got all the kit on. He's you know, right. Shined his boots, that kind of thing. But he's like, he's he's in a position ready to fight. And so perhaps um, even almost like an elevated status other than the average soldier. Right. My father-in-law, who was uh, entered the Army in 1959, used to refer to, oh, that's really Strack. Um, yeah, you, yeah. Know, <laughs> you know, that was his generation of, of um, you know, I guess kind of hua, if you will, sure. yeah. from that generation. And then the Air Force had a tactical air command that was also a expeditionary um, command, for want of a better term. Mm -hmm. So Strike Command was a way of creating a joint command for these. Now the Navy and Marine Corps was not very keen on the strike command construct and did not want to contribute to it, but the Army and the Air Force fully supported it. And this is, so this was to create a command that could rapidly deploy forces to areas that were not in a COCOM boundary. And Strike Command is at MacDill Air Force and it's Base. Put at MacDill Air Force Base. Is this the first major command at MacDill? It is. Okay. So, I mean, you know, MacDill had been, MacDill was a strategic air command base in the 50s and 60s, but it's the first major four star COCOM type command that's put at MacDill Air Force Base. And then just to put a finer point on it, this is basically like staff headquarters type stuff, type folks that are there. And these forces you're talking about are elsewhere all over the country, right. and they're ready to be called up by strike command, go into the Middle East or go into Africa. Exactly, okay. exactly. All right, so um, the uh, take us from strike command maybe into maybe the early 1970s then. Sure, so strike command is uh, created in 62. Um, one of its additional duties becomes Commander-in-Chief Middle East, Africa, um, and South Asia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it doesn't have what we would consider traditional geographic COCOM responsibilities. It doesn't do security cooperation, but it does do planning for those contingencies. And it's a three-star commander? It's a four-star commander. Okay. It's, it's a four-star COCOM. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. So we have Strike Command. And then in the region, in 1967, we get the Six-Day War. Mm -hmm. um, other than the uh, attack on the USS Liberty, um, you know, there's no direct American military or American involvement in the Six-Day War, but it is hugely important in the region. Uh, you know, this is where Israel goes to, um, this is why we have, uh, when we just talk about Israel, pre-1967 borders, post-1967 borders, because Israel overruns the Sinai, it takes over the West Bank, it takes over the Golan Heights, takes over Jerusalem, and, and as the name would suggest, it does all this in six days. It's a crushing, crushing defeat for the Arab powers, um, Egypt in particular, um, but uh, Jordan and Syria as well. Mm. And so this has, has massive um, uh, strategic effects and in, in impacts uh, United States relations with the countries in the region as well, but also highlights the need to be planning for contingencies. Mm -hmm. And then we get, um, you know, the decision to replace in 1970, well, let me, let me back up again. In 1969, we get the um, announcement of the Nixon Doctrine because in 68, the British announced they're withdrawing from east of Suez. So the Nixon Doctrine is a statement that we, in, instead of basing a lot of American forces in a region, we will support regional partners to provide security. Mm -hmm. And the main regional partners in the Middle East become Iran and also Saudi Arabia, 
And then in 1971, we see uh, Bahrain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates all get their independence. Mm. Um, so we're seeing all those changes happening in that period. So we're relying on our regional partners, just as we do now, right. uh, to really protect their own interests, their own security and stability, but also perhaps to look over our interests in the region. Right. And our main interest, which is also their interest, is to prevent the Soviet Union from dominating the region. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, this is all being done in a Cold War context. Um, but there is, you know, we are now also getting the point where the strategic flow of oil in particular, um, but the free flow of commerce through the Straits of Hormuz uh, is becoming hugely important. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1 January 1972, Strike Command turns into U.S. Readiness Command. Mm -hmm. uh, also Four Star Command. Also Four Star Command. Same building, same staff, just a change of mission. It's actually surprising how often we see a command just change its function and change its logo, but all the same people, all the same building. Um, yeah. We do that quite a bit. Right. But the main thing that happens with uh, that change is that it loses its operational planning requirement uh, or, or uh, responsibility. Okay. And that goes to, I guess, the combatant. That goes to well. So the responsibility for the Middle East um, gets shifted to U.S. European Command. So, so readiness command <clears throat> stays here in McDill, stays in the same building, and uh, but we'll we'll uh, lose that um, operational responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting then because European Command, I'm it, it obviously really focused on Europe. Um, also focused on portions of the Middle East. Right. And REDCOM has, I guess, just maintains really the rapid deployment component, that, that mission. Right. And then REDCOM becomes responsible for, again, the forces that are in the United States that mm -hmm. are not actually under any of the other COCOMs. Okay. Um, so depending on how old you are, if you're old enough to remember Joint Forces Command, a lot yeah. of what Readiness Command did yeah. is very similar to what Joint Forces Command did before that was disestablished. Okay. All right, well, look, uh, we covered a lot of ground. We went from uh, World War II to uh, 1972 in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. Sure. So let's put a bow on it. What, what should we take away, what should the listener take away about American military command in this part of the world before CENTCOM? Well, I think we, so what you should take away is before 1970, we don't really have to pay much attention to the Middle East because we're counting on our friends, the British, to really take mm -hmm. the interest in there. So it is not as vital to us and it's not as vital to the globe as it will become later um, as, as we see the world can increasingly industrialize and the Middle East becoming a more, more important source of oil and hydrocarbons. But as also we've got, um, we don't have a security vacuum there. And then when the British withdraw in 1968, now the United States has to step up and take responsibility. But there's a reluctance for us to commit a lot in the way of resources in the region. So our initial approach is to just support our regional partners. Mm. And there's a reluctance to create a dedicated command to do that. It's floated a number of times in the 50s and into the 60s. We eventually will create in 1962 a command that will kind of have as an additional duty, if you will, mm -hmm. pay attention to the Middle East. But um, once we get into the early 1970s, the region's instability is becoming clearer. Its ability to affect the globe and the United States becomes unavoidable with the 1973 oil crisis. 
and uh, it becomes clear that we're going to have to have to find some way to better manage this. And and then, you know, when we get into the mid to late 70s, we'll start seeing how the U.S. national security apparatus comes to grips with managing this problem. It's a, a fascinating story, the evolution of really American national security thinking about this part of the world. And you, you know, have so much insight into it, so much kind of wisdom and, and really experience here in CENTCOM, but, but also all that you've read and studied on this matter. So really appreciate you bringing that insight and that wisdom here to the show. Sure, well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure and, you know, I look forward to hopefully doing some more in the future. You are listening to CENTCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. What'd you think? What can I say? It's just, you learn so much. A lot of good material there, and you know he's a master of explaining it. Absolutely, just fascinating the things that he laid out and how they intertwine mm -hmm. with the overall picture, the overall story mm -hmm. on some of those milestones. Now, Let's tee up episode four. Okay. So for episode four, a lot of our viewers mm -hmm. and our listeners. Listen, we don't have any viewers. We don't it's, have any viewers. It's an audio program. <laughs> I like to. Yeah. I like to pretend that we're. Yeah, unless they're watching their phone while right. they're listening. Yeah. But a lot of our listeners have reached out to us yeah. via email and through other hallways. They say, hey, can, you, can we delve it a little bit more into those, that oil crisis? The 1973 oil crisis we talked about yes, in episode two. And people tell me all the time, they say, Joe, how do I talk to my children about the 1973 oil crisis? You know, <laughs> how, how do, do I explain? Yeah, yeah. How do I have this candid discussion with my children? And so we're going to help you through that in episode four. Episode four. What are we calling episode four? Uh, let's, I don't know, we'll come up with, you know, 1973 right. oil crisis. How's okay. that? 1973 oil crisis. That's what we're talking about. It was, again, it was a shocking moment. Um, we, came, we talked about it in episode two with regard to President Nixon and, and soon to be or future President Reagan at the time he was uh, governor of California. And uh, it had an impact in the way he viewed in the way he viewed the possible formation of CENTCOM. Perfect. I got an idea. Oil turmoil. Mull on that. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. All right, everyone. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. See you for episode four.